0: Magic Hour was recorded at the VCA on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Australia has the oldest unbroken storytelling tradition on earth and that's something I'm humbled by and pay my deepest respects to. Welcome to Magic Hour, a podcast about screen culture. Makers, doers, thinkers coming at you from the VCA, part of Melbourne University. My name is Ben Michael, I'm an academic, a screenwriter and a musician. And part of our mission statement at the Victorian College of the Arts is to share information with the public. The Film and TV School, over its 50 year career, it's the oldest film school in Australia, has produced a bunch of really amazing students who have gone on to incredible careers. So often we'll be talking to them. The other thing that happens at the VCA is we have filmmakers come by and talk to the students. We often record those and they're full of amazing insights into how film and TV gets made. So we'll be sharing them with you as well. Welcome to Magic Hour, episode three. This week, we're uh, bringing you a recording of a panel that the school organised as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival 2022. This is a panel that was discussing the kind of future models of screen funding how are we gonna get films made? Where's the money gonna come from? And how people are gonna see them? It's a really interesting panel. There's a couple of amazing people on this panel. One of them is Goran Stolofsky, who's an ex-student of the school and is now onto his third feature film. He's Goran's <laughs> he's a hell of a human being. He gave an amazing end of year speech to the graduates at the end of 2022. He's a man who made, I think it was 23, short films many of which no one would bother looking at or putting on before finally his feature film career took off so i'm really keen for you to hear what goran has to say about that we've also got caleb Rattals, who graduated far more recently from the school he's only 21 years old and had his first feature anark screen at MIF 2022 so he's like i don't know a young genius <laughs> Joining him as well is producer Emma Roberts, whose amazing VR film Gondwana screened at MIF 2022. And they're being interviewed by academics Dr. Kristen Stevens and Dr. Duncan Callard. There's a lot here for people who are looking at how screen culture is changing and how screen funding is changing. So I hope you enjoy this chat.
1: So, the, the big challenge at the moment is that the existing business model has been utterly turned on its head. For a really long time film financing has been based on the idea that there will be a long period of time after a film comes out where it will earn, could be small amounts of money as it goes through different stages of release into ancillary markets. You know, for a really long time DVD supported film financing, that's obviously been declining for over a decade now. And we've got streaming that's come in as the new kind of outlet for films, but it hasn't come with the same business model that says there's going to be this long tail of you know, increasingly diminishing returns, but money that will keep feeding back down and feeding residuals and feeding a recruitment. And we haven't quite worked out what's going to replace it. There's some films that make it work and find a way for digital distribution to cover the shortfall. But at the moment, we're seeing this kind of disconnect to what's expected of filmmakers in terms of how they raise finance, and what the industry is actually supporting at the moment. And that gap between what can be raised and what's available, what's expected is is at the moment growing a little bit bigger, which isn't an optimistic kind of look at this, the idea that the current business model around financing is starting to, to fall away a bit. But there is optimism in these new approaches of collectives, of looking outside that traditional idea of what a film financing plan looks like, you know, going to the federal funders, the state funders, private investors and distributors to put together your funding and instead looking at crowdfunding, looking at innovative ways to to come up with the money. But I think this is where we are in a A disrupted period where there's not a clear pathway of this is how you go and you raise money.
2: Goran, you just produced two films. What was that experience like for you at this point of crisis? In my
3: case, the financing was based on initially there was a little bit from Screen Oz. We had, for the first feature, we had a sales agent from the UK who put in a big offer. My producers have built track record of supporting kind of bold art house visions. At that time it was often crossover with genre, but it's definitely not exclusively that anymore. And I think based on the trust the sales agent had in them, that was enough to sort of get the film going in terms of financing and then we had a little bit of support from state funding. It's a relatively low budget film for something that is a genre film, but it's also very art house and uncompromising in other ways, especially uh, it comes with the worst thing a film could possibly do, which is have subtitles. (laughs) Like, I remember when they first did a screening, the studio of the finished film, and they were giving like the pros and cons of the responses. And most of the, there were a lot of pros. And when they were listing the caveats, as they phrased it, the first one was, well, it's subtitled. It's a foreign language film that was seen as a criticism uh, as if it was an oversight creatively. So that's the context that film was made in. And then because uh, once the, that film was finished and it was seen as quite... it was Before it even premiered anywhere, I think people had seen it internally within the industry mm. and kind of it gave them confidence about my ability to direct mm. so my second feature was actually quite straightforward to finance in a way that I never thought it was possible and that it, my producers didn't think is it, possible so whenever she talks at mm. these panels she's like don't think this is something that can actually happen again but we had again it's a relatively low budget film by major second feature standards and then once screen Australia invested and we had quite. Pretty straightforward process. I, I mean, the same sales agent from the UK came on board, and also my first film was bought by a major studio for you know more than what was invested into it. So it was already seen as financially successful as well as creatively. But yeah, it, it's it's been quite this weirdly cruisy in the last year and a half in terms of financing. But these are two of thirteen features I've written, uh, you know, along the way. Before I could even make my first feature, I'd already. Made twenty-five shorts. I got multiple film degrees. I had written yet yeah, all thirteen of them. Lots of unanswered emails. I played it over two or three hundred festivals. So that by the time one of them hit, I had a glut of things I could possibly mm. pursue as a result. And a track record in terms of work that I've done to show.
2: The discussion of like, subtitles in that context, I think, is really interesting. And especially following on from Bong Joon-ho's uh, mm. really quite historic win at the Academy Awards, where he was talking about overcoming that one each boundary of subtitles. Mm. And I suppose one question, if we have late, time later on, would be to think about whether... Whether the global film industry is becoming more inclusive in terms of in terms of that subtitles that effort to it's very actually very fashionable build. to watch things with subtitles these days <laughs> makes you feel very educated. <laughs> um, I suppose shifting gears from feature filmmaking to thinking about new media production and XR, Emma, what's the current state of play in terms of XR production and, and particularly XR financing? XR, if people don't know, is like VR, AR,
4: and MR, which is mixed reality, the virtual augmented. Interesting hearing the rest of the panel talk about these different modes of of financing because i think this is something that like vr is not limited per se to the film financing model and never has been and i think that's something that i find i'm from a film background i find that quite liberating it can cross over with so many different media whether that is film or whether that's science whether that's tech r&d dance arts and i've found there to be a much richer pool to pull from in that regard Mm. to be able to finance my XR work and and I see that internationally and in Australia, more so internationally than in Mm. Australia. This willingness to to step outside of the mold of just, oh, it's story, so it has to be through the film channels. Mm. And that's way more exciting and facilitates much more experimental work, I think. When you're not limited to this idea of what a story should be and how it should be told. I think there's a lot of people expecting a XR piece or VR in particular to cost a million dollars and, you know, be super high-end and it's Ready Player One, but that's
2: nowhere near necessary. One of the global trends in terms of XR financing is these huge tech conglomerates in Silicon Valley sort of throwing money that they have through advertising or other sources into Mm. experimentation in XR and, of course, Meta owned by the Zuck is a a huge investor in both the technology but also in content. Mm. How much of that capital is available in an Australian context? And I suppose how do you, as an Australian based XR producer, how do you compete? with people getting venture capital funding in Silicon Valley?
4: Yeah, I mean, like that's one pathway Mm. that you see. There are some big organizations or tech startups or whatever that might be coming into the space and being like, oh, yes, millions of dollars, (laughs) billions of dollars probably Mm. in in the the meta side of things and let's chuck that at it and and we're going to money our way into creativity. I think a lot of the money that's going into VR and on the Silicon Valley side of things often is going into create very hyper real visuals um, in a relatively non boundary pushing environment it's let's create to take meta as an example what if your boardroom was in VR and it's like well it could be <laughs> but why um, <laughs> when there are like there are so many exciting creatives that I know that are creating work that is immensely moving and immensely powerful or comedic or like whatever who are Mm. creating really fantastic work on a very like a relatively low budget scale particularly for film and particularly for other people's expectations of what XR being tech should cost to make and I don't think it's something you need to access in Mm. Australia or otherwise to be able to create really exciting and, and boundary pushing and
2: interesting work. Starting with Kirsten, but going throughout the entire panel, how have these technological transformations over the past few years in terms of streaming services, in terms of uh, new technologies which are available, how has that affected the industry in an Australian context but also beyond?
1: In so many ways. I mean, technology really has transformed the film industry over the last 20 years. We've moved from a state where, you know, I think pre-2012, most cinemas in Australia had celluloid projection to now good luck if you can find one. So just in that, the, the basic technology has hugely been changed. But I think the more interesting story beyond that is, yeah, we're looking at the means of production and the means of distribution becoming so much more accessible. We've seen ways of collaborating become more accessible. Different types of scopic regimes become something that can be explored I'm yet to see a Zoom film that I like, (laughs) but I'm willing to believe it could happen. You know, as we engage with different technology, there is certainly, if we're thinking XR, ways of viewing that would have been unheard of even 20 years ago are becoming more possible. And with that, new types of storytelling. And I think, you know, certainly if we're thinking about some of the stories we've heard and, and some of the films that we're getting to watch is the fact that, It's almost like when, first of all, portable cameras, you know, French New Wave, and then video cameras through the 1980s, you see this surge of production that happens where suddenly there is access to different types of filmmaking, where it becomes increasingly possible to go out and do it, to just make films. And I think we're seeing that happening again, thanks to the change in technology.
2: Goran, you are both a director but you're also an editor. How have these digital technologies affected both your creative practice but also just in a very practical sense your workflow as a filmmaker?
3: I come from that background of uh, you know my first 15 films were me chasing my friends around with a mini DV camera. Editing equipment was Adobe Premiere or Final Cut, depending on, you know, which university I was at at the time. It was from having access uh, to technology, which, you know, if I was born 20 years earlier, I would not have had access to. I don't come from money. And then as, you know, my filmmaking and ambitions became, I guess, more uh, sophisticated, for lack of a better term, I realized I don't have the wherewithal and technological knowledge to be a cinematographer, but with editing, I still feel like I can do it. And so I think all of these things contribute towards being able to deliver a stronger movie in the end. It also ends up giving access to a lot of different kinds of filmmakers, and you're not as reliant on institutions and gatekeepers and so on and so forth.
2: Caleb, how, how does your experience sort of compare to that?
5: Because growing up, making videos of films is so easy Growing up. You know, I had iMovie. It was really easy to learn in my generation. You were a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I feel like filmmakers in the next 10 years are going to be so fast to catch on with expressing their own ideas because it's so easy to learn nowadays with YouTube, you know? I remember my first year lecturer saying, oh, yeah, at VFX, we just watch YouTube to do this little job that we didn't learn in uni. We just use YouTube. <laughs> yeah, cool. That's what I did. <laughs> but... I think for me, yeah, the accessibility to learn at a mass faster rate. But what's more interesting to me is when the lockdown, all these restrictions started happening, how do I make films without the physical space through online communications? With my craft, I, I really love to be that. have a great linked relationship with my actors, being there in the space. So you have to find a way how to navigate that relationship through, through mm-hmm. Zoom. Because I made Anak. I wrote and workshopped it right before the lockdown finished was trying to find the ways to realize that film, even meeting my huds, like I've never even met my my DPs right there. Um, (laughs) We met on Zoom and how do we communicate our ideas together? But because there's so much um, ways of communicating nowadays, it's actually much easier to collaborate.
2: Kirsten, you've, uh, in addition to your numerous roles in an academic context, you're also heavily involved with the Melbourne Women in Film Festival. I suppose, based on both your research experience, but also uh, your experience there and conversations with stakeholders, is the situation getting better, and how inclusive is the industry being for people from diverse backgrounds in those contexts?
1: This is where we get to the downer, downer <laughs> part of the note. Um, There is this wonderful thing of the access to the means of production, the access to technology, but unfortunately, particularly in the film industry, there are still gatekeepers and Mm. I think one of the biggest areas where there's the gatekeepers is in terms of getting films in front of audiences. So on the one hand, there's this wonderful world of online distribution and the idea that if you make something, you can get it out there and people who understand how to do that on TikTok good on you, I am clearly too old, but there is now so much content out there that you still often need a gatekeeper to help you break through and help you actually reach audiences of scale. Unfortunately, those gatekeepers are the people that were asking you, oh, why can't your characters be Anglo? And, Mm. you know, they they (laughs) are an older guard who unfortunately haven't necessarily embraced that. So I think there is still quite a lot of disadvantage even as people are able to pick up material. And as you both said, you know, around knowledge acquisition, you know, small plug for my film festival, Melbourne Women in Screen, we've got a program aimed at secondary students from the Western suburbs, um, culturally and linguistically diverse people who have not necessarily picked up a camera before. We've got a program called Visualise Your Voice that we run every year with our festival to get them in, get them onto a sound stage, get them to actually pick up a camera and in the space of a day, you know, as much as you can make a film in the space of a day, go from, right, idea to actually making it and leaving with a film at the end of the day. But if we're looking at women's role and place in the industry, it's still a pretty depressing picture, sadly, in Australia. I mean, 2015, yeah, golden year, we got gender matters. We finally had, after, you know, women's Support funding, Women's Film Fund, was disestablished in the early 90s. Finally, the funding agencies went, oh, we we should pay attention to this again. Turns out ignoring the problem didn't make it go away. And small improvements have happened with that. There's at least been a conversation. But there was a report that came out a couple of weeks ago from Amanda Coles and a few other researchers at Deakin University that was just talking about how toxic the industry is, particularly in heads of department but especially in cinematography and it's sort of I think that's the problem at the moment for diversity and inclusion in the industry is that you're operating in an industry that for a really long time has had incredibly punishing work schedules and very little sort of ability to push back on that and go why do we have to, you know, work 20 out of 24 hours in a day for six weeks on location where there's no other kind of support for any kind of aged care if you're looking after parents or child care or anything like that. And on the one hand you understand it like film budgets are so tight where are you going to find the money for any of that? But equally it means that you create an industry where you have to have independent wealth to mm. operate in it for a lot of people and you need to not have care responsibilities and mm. you need to not have a lot of other things. And it allows a lot of behaviour to go on that, yeah, creates these toxic environments, creates spaces where people don't feel uh, safe and so can't break into the industry Mm. or get pushed out after their first bad experience. We, unfortunately, as much as we're talking about this stuff more now, and I think that's the first really important step, the industry has still got a long way to go to to really open its doors.
2: Emma, there's been a really interesting question in the chat. Does queer XR have an established aesthetic? And what does, (laughs) speaking in in terms of someone working in new media, what's your experience of sort of non-normative identity been in that context?
4: I am shocked how little queer XR I've seen. Like, shocked. There's a a lot of, like, culturally and linguistically diverse people making XR that's, like, amazing and super different and, and expressive. VR made by and about people with disabilities, I've made like indigenous Mm. people making VR, queer VR, Ah, where is it? What the (laughs) hell? um, What I will say about what I have seen, there is something inherently queer about virtual space because it's nothingness until you form what you Mm. want within that space. And there's and you can throw out the rules of physics, all these fundamentals of what how we understand the world to be, and you can rebuild them the way that you want to. So I think the things that I have seen will play with that. Whether that's you know moving through, uh, moving through things that you sh- that should be solid, or whether that's rendering the world in a way that is very fluid and 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 and. And not necessarily always photorealistic, and I think that's really interesting. Like, as just generally for the form, you know, like mm. to be, I think it's it's inherent to a lot of queer digital artwork, and there are so many amazing queer digital artists. It's quite I, I see a lot of amazing boundary pushing from that perspective, and that's mm. so cool across like everyone should be looking at
2: that and going, wow. Yeah. And, and that point on uh, particularly VR aesthetics being like you think that you, you have a sense of what your body is, you think you have a sense of where mm. you are, here's, here's a different version. Here's that seems intrinsically, um, there's something very radical and very queer about yeah. that. There's another question. Uh, there was a question for Caleb, which is will you stick to this collective approach to filmmaking? And can you tell us a little bit more about your creative process within that collaborative environment?
5: Mm. But, like I mentioned before, it's difficult to get like a team without any like finance. So throughout this moment, the only thing I could pitch or the only thing I could present is my passion and a story. And I could just cross my fingers that these guys will resonate. I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged and lucky that my collaborators buy. It, you know it takes a lot. you got to be this is my voice, you know it might not be good, but it comes from a good intent. And I have the advantage of being in a younger generation where everyone's, like I said, really hungry for, for work and they just want to learn and want to help out and this idea of this collective environment. So that is the only way that I made that, that film. But then now the next step is, you know, I, can't, I don't have the physical energy. <laughs> I don't have the physical energy to keep doing that for the rest of my mm. life and for my career. I, I want to get more people to, to invest in me. But how do I not break away from the people, that collective, that we tried to develop in the first place? I guess that's the next step for me. It's been another question.
2: Uh, How long did it take to film?
5: My DP thinks seven days. I'm pretty sure it was five days. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was five. But because of, you know, budgets, (laughs) $7,000. I could only afford five, five <laughs> um, and a lot. Of, a lot I asked for a lot of favors. The good thing about the Filipino community is that, yeah, man, I'm Filipino. Yo, yeah, you're Filipino. I-, I love you. Yeah, <laughs> use a space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. It's the other hidden benefit to being in the first <laughs> yeah, community, right? <laughs> right. Uh, that's the great thing about, you know, in my case, Filipino. Like it's a very giving.
2: It's a very giving culture. Go on, there was a question you've had really quite astonishing success this year. Um, but as you've said, it, it's come after a long time of hard work and, and keeping at it and producing those short films. How do you sustain yourself creatively at those difficult points when when it does take that time, when the payoff is not immediate?
3: I fall into a pattern where every time there was like a massive, massive rejection, even just like on a coping with it psychologically, like if I started writing something new, it would take up all my... Mm-hmm. Energy. And that's what I was invested in just to get over the trauma, essentially, you know. Because there were a lot of projects that were knocked back, you know, over the years. And I I, I do find as soon as, whenever there's something horrific I have to deal with, if I can, you know, healthily then put all that energy into something creative, sort of lose myself in that, it helps. And that's how I managed to generate
1: Mm. so
3: much work. And the other thing is also like, I think it really dilutes toxicity over the years. If you've Mm. had to make short films by yourself with asking people to do favors Mm. for you. I I will never feel like the boss on a set Mm. because I'm just used to every, you know. And frankly, you're not, because if you just try to be a boss, like with someone or or, like tell them off, they're just gonna do their work half-assed. Like, and you're you're the only one who cares about the film. You're, You're the one who cares about the film more than anyone else.
2: To finish off, what is something that you're excited about moving forward? And uh, before the uh, panel, we were discussing what social media Luddites we are. Um, so I suppose what, what work can people look forward to, either at this festival or um, how can they follow you into the future?
4: So I'll do the second part first because it's easy. Um, so Gondwana, um, which it's a 48-hour it's a, it's a constantly evolving virtual reality installation. It's a rainforest environment that evolves in line with climate data. So there's that and what am I excited about? I'm, I'm excited to, to like get back and working on other projects. Like mm. I feel like it's very nice to be like, oh, the yeah. festival circuit, but like <laughs> just like can I just work? Like <laughs> how am I supposed to get like the next thing? To, like I've just got like projects that I'm excited about that I would like to work on and it's really
2: rude that people like want to show my work. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: <laughs>
2: Goran, um, what are you excited about?
3: During casting for Of an Age, I was working, I was looking at a lot of uh, short films and accel- Accelerator and elsewhere, and the level of acting and crafting was so much higher than it, and this is, it sounds bitchy, but I don't mean it. It's so much higher, creativity, originality, so much higher in the short films that are being made than it is in established filmmaking in Australia. Mm-hmm. So it might take another 20 years because slow turnover, but I don't think mm-hmm. it will. I think things are shifting so rapidly and who knows what's going to happen in five years time anyway, but like, I think we have a lot more original voices mm-hmm. of, of making their way through um, and much better actors.
2: Fantastic. Uh, Kirsten?
1: I'm excited. So uh, along with looking to the future and usually being depressed by <laughs> what's happening with, um, <laughs> the, you know, that kind of thing, my the other part of my job is I'm a historian, film historian, and there's sort of a couple of things that I've encountered at this festival that make me excited. Listening to people talk, particularly listening to you talk about collaborative experience. I did watch Senses of Cinema, which is a documentary by John Hughes about the filmmakers co-ops in the 1970s and 1980s. And even though I'm a historian, I know how all of that ends. It was a really exciting moment where it, and I see it kind of coming back that, you know, you do get these moments where the best way to make film and best way to make work is to work with your peers and to create your own spaces. And that is what the filmmakers' co-ops did. They distributed their own films. They had this policy. They had a cinema in Sydney where they screened every person's film, no matter what. They would put it on, and there was this real culture of support. I think that is coming back around, around with new technologies, with new ways problem-solving. Weirdly, the past I find really exciting as a potential avenue for now.
5: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, kind of... Excited about everything. Not excited to work tomorrow, but <laughs> um, opportunities like this make me feel like, yeah, you know what? I am a filmmaker. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> I'll give that an applause. <laughs> yeah. Very excited to get into this a new project very
2: soon and hopefully I have more time and money for it. (laughs) Well, thank you all for coming. Part of what makes this, I think, a really exciting panel is that there's quite a bit of optimism and this sense that an alternate way of doing things is possible and that it's not only possible, but it's what we should be doing. And so as we as we move out into the future, it's absolutely critical that, that we stay on top of that and that we don't just stick to business as usual. Thank you so much to the University of Melbourne and Myth for having us and a final report.